Coming up on this week's show, a Commodore 64 replica for less than the price of a game. A heartwarming story from Nintendo. And we take our first look at Command & Conquer Remastered. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 217, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show. Now, actually, I was quite pleased looking at the stats that we've, uh, we've actually had some quite healthy numbers over the last couple of weeks. I think a lot of people at the moment are discovering new podcasts. Yeah, it could be due to recent events yep. uh, in the news <laughs> and stuff like that. Could be a couple of people staying at home, a couple of people working from home. But it's really awesome. And either way, whatever the reason that you've come here, we really, really appreciate it. Now, I did get actually a little Facebook message the other day. Some guy going, oh, I'm listening to my Alexa. And he figured out that you can just say, you know, Alexa, play the Retro Hour podcast and it plays it, which is pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah, so, I mean, if you, if you are at home and you've got a smart speaker nearby, really good way to listen. And uh, if you are a new listener as well, let's just give you a, a, a very nice welcome to the show. I'm Dan, uh, Ravi and Joe's here as well. Well, we've done this podcast for four years now. Uh, so over four years, actually. Every single Friday, we bring out a podcast and uh, we bring you a guest on the show every week. Now, sometimes people say, well, seriously, you have a guest in every episode. Yeah, every for, week. for that long. And we've, we've, yep. we've not missed an episode as well. We've had a few <laughs> where we've done like Q&As or yep. we've talked about like, oh, we always do a super quiz at Christmas yeah, and yep. stuff. But we always bring you a quality guest. And also a massive shout out to Ravi because he always sources these guests. Yep. And sometimes it gets a bit like, you know, white knuckle, a bit. <laughs> But, you know, four years in, we're in our fifth year now, yep. and it's still the quality's there, man. It's not like, oh, here's Trev from your local shop who once had a PlayStation. He might be next week, you never know. But, but they're always yeah. amazing guests, you know. Well, at least I like to think, you know, not being very humble here, but they're always amazing guests. Ah, I'll cancel Trev for next week. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, though, yeah, the amount of times we get tweets from people going, just when I thought the retro had run out of getting guests, you get Charlie Brooker on as well. And do you know what? We've got a list, a huge list of about 200 people that I want to get on for the future. So this yeah. isn't going to stop. No, absolutely. And Ravi works very hard to get the guests on, and they're always fantastic as well. Now, uh, we cover a lot of different systems as well. I mean, Joe, you're really into console gaming. Ravi's really like the PC guy among us. And I'm kind of, you know, I, I do yeah, both, really. I've got no idea about retro <laughs> games. Yeah. I just go, what are retro games? Um, but, I mean, we've all kind of got our own little areas of gaming that we're into. But we like to cover quite a lot in this show. I mean, the Commodore 64 is always a system that I really enjoy covering as well. Um, and this week, we're going to be joined by a C64 legend. Now, Carlton Handley, he worked for so many different companies back in the day. And he's, uh, you know, I think of the games he worked on, especially football games. We're going to talk yeah, about that. Yeah, so he, he was working during that kind of FIFA period after Sensi and kickoff. So we talk a bit about football, but also we talk about Spitting Image, which was yeah. one of those <laughs> huge titles. And we also talk about maybe a new project that he's working on because he's actually gone back into C64 development. So, you know, the C64 scene's blowing up and... A, as we'd noticed with a lot of these programmers, they're actually going full circle and returning back to their roots. It's crazy because, I mean, he actually worked for a company called Walking Circles. That actually, I remember reading quite a bit about Walking Circles, one of their most famous titles that did um, a version of Hunt for Red October back in the day. Um, I think they went out of business like 91, 92. But they had quite a good run of it, a British gaming company. One that you don't hear much of anymore. Mm. And I was actually quite interested to talk to him. Actually with Domark as well. Yeah, it? a lot of yeah. the games were released through Domark and, you know, games that came out with EA and Atari and stuff as well. So it's a 
really interesting chat, this, about, you know, a really good time in British gaming. And one interesting point that you, you mentioned there is that he's now back into making games again for the Commodore 64. He's gone through all the consoles. He did iOS games for like a decade. Now he actually said the games he's bringing out on the 64 are not only getting more attention than all the phone games he's done for the last decade, but also actually getting more attention than the games he released in the 64 when it was new. And making more money than, <laughs> yeah. the, making more money than the iOS ones. Oh, wow. Well, which is crazy. crazy. That is crazy. That is amazing. So, well, yeah, Colton Handley, he's going to be our guest on the show in around 20 minutes from now. Now, every week on the podcast as well, we update you with what's been happening in the world of retro gaming. So that's one thing, I mean, you know, kind of tying into what we said there about the fact that these games are doing really well. The retro gaming scene is thriving. I mean, there are weeks where literally we can't fit all the news stories into like yeah. an hour-long episode. It's like there's always stuff happening. That's one thing I always find when journalist interviewers are like, well... What news is going on in retro? Isn't it all old stuff you're talking about? It's like, no. There's news yeah, and, and whenever I kind of like let it slip at work that I'm actually a super nerd and I say to somebody, I, you <laughs> everyone know, knows, you know, <laughs> uh, I do a podcast or whatever about retro game news and they're just like, what do you, what do you mean like retro games? You must run out of stuff to talk yeah. about. And I'm like, you would not believe <laughs> the stuff that's still happening. Do you know what I mean? It's crazy the amount of things that just like pop up out of nowhere like Nintendo Playstations and stuff yeah. like that it's crazy well even in like you know, since we started doing the show it's like we have more news than yeah. ever every week yeah. to get through now and more of our favourite games are coming back as well now we did an episode god must have been like two years ago maybe now with um, Frank Kaplaki yes. and Ravi was well excited about that one. and we also did one with Louis Castle as yeah, well Castle, who was yep. um, kind of head of Westwood yep. and Westwood Studios they were the king of real time strategy and they did a Command and Conquer, and he was telling us about a, a little thing called the Command and Conquer Remastered Collection. Now, that was when it had just started. We literally got him on as it had been announced, didn't we? So yeah. there wasn't many details about it, apart from there's a picture of the old crew back together, about to start working it, but we've got our first trailer. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> right, I'm going to get Command and Conquer. Go on, Ravi, literally, go. Me- literally just mentioned it. Like yeah. I sent it over as a news story to Dan, and like Ravi was just like, oh, my God, <laughs> when we walked into the studio. So what happened with Command and Conquer? EA basically kept trying to re- release it. Generals was the, yeah. the last one, and Generals 2 was going to come out but never came out. Yeah. So what happened was the fans were like, this series is blooming good we can't leave it to die mm. so they started to do their own super enhanced versions so general's enhanced was high res okay it was all in like 4k new effects they'd redone all the things so i think ea must have taken notice of this yeah and they said right let's get the original team back and the original guys and let's do the collection so this isn't only command and conquer this is also a uh, tiberian sun as well and Red Alert. All, all of the add-ons as yeah, well, yeah, yeah, which yeah. Uh, Aftershock, all of that stuff. But they've got so many cool features. Like a great thing about Command and Conquer was the actors in there. If you remember the video, yeah, sequences. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking yeah. about Jen Rackinson, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she she was in um, Red Alert Free. But they've brought them all. They've brought loads of the actors back, haven't they? Well, it looks like they've brought them back, but they've also upscaled the FMV. They've they've kind of redone the um, CGI because you used to get these like tanks coming in but yeah, they look but looked, awful look like something out of the original worms for playstation and yeah. pc on the cybercar yeah yeah he is they've got frank kaplaki yeah. on who was, did that fantastic music but he's also got his new band the tiberian sons and they're also doing the real heavy metal soundtrack and they've built in a jukebox so you can actually go through check all the different things what's 
what I think really is really cool as well is they're doing the tw- it's a 25 year anniversary yeah. of it as well. And I read somewhere uh, you can get a big box PC version of it as well. Mm. I don't know what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. But like, you get, like, that's how lo- games are sold by then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Loads of maps and like little little Tiberium crystals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then probably just the code for the digital game. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they've got essential features that people have always wanted for a long time because I know a lot of people that play Command & Conquer competitively mm. and custom hotkeys is a thing that they oh, really yeah. wanted. Yeah. You know, control improvements. I'm sure the AI is actually massively improved from the AI that they had back then and they've got game lobbies. It's just like beautifully done and really, really for the fans. What about, you know, the trailer then? So you've watched the trailer. I mean, are you hyped after watching oh, it? Oh, mega, mega, mega. You were anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be coming out in June? June uh, 5th. June, we haven't got long to wait then. Yeah, yeah, so not and long. I think pre-orders on Steam. Yeah, so you there. can pre-order on Steam and Origin. And okay. you can get now. a big limited edition box set as well if you yeah. want to pre-order that. Yeah. We're thinking PC I only. It's only like, yeah, I think Maybe, it's PC yeah. only, but it's only $20, from I think, right? from what I saw, unless I was looking at the wrong thing. Uh, which makes sense because it's a remaster. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and sometimes these remasters and stuff come out cheap. It's not a remake. But yeah, 100%. I mean, I've not got a PC set up for gaming at the moment. So if it doesn't come to PS4 and Xbox One, I'm going to be really, really Well, jealous. I think <laughs> if this is successful, then it's going to give a big reason for EA to relaunch Command & Conquer and probably do a more mm. modern mm. Command & Conquer, which would be awesome. Yeah. The fact they've got the original crew back together to do it, though, as well. I mean, yeah. if you don't want to do it right, I'd tell you do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, there's nothing worse than when... You know, we, we often have developers on who've worked on games in the past that have been brought back, but they've had nothing to do with yeah, it. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I played it, but yeah, I wouldn't have done it like that. I wouldn't have done it like that. Yeah. And you want the original guys there that came mm, up with the concept mm, and mm. have their ideas. And, and so, yeah, I, I was never, you know, I, I remember seeing the original game around. I was never a player of it, but I'm quite interested to get this. And- For me, after Dune, mm. that was the best RTS. And if that had come out on the Commodore or something on the Amiga, oh, it would have made it. But for me, I was just, Played it on the PC, chuck the Amiga away. You know? <laughs> is, that, is that what did it? Is yeah, it? that was what did it. It was the mid nineties. I needed to upgrade. Yeah. <laughs> you can't hold it off forever. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're excited for that. We'll keep an eye on that one. And uh, Ravi, I'll give you his review. I'm, I'm sure on day one. Yeah, yeah, as soon as it comes out. Now, do you want about a heartwarming story? We've had lots of news that's been you know, a bit down in the dumps over the last yeah. week. Everyone's been a bit fed up. What about something to put a smile on your face? Now, this is Nintendo. Yeah. Now, normally when we talk about Nintendo, it was, oh, they took down another YouTube channel or they blocked yeah. another fan project. What about a heartwarming tale of Nintendo helping out a sweet old grandma? Oh, Now, this is nice. a, a lovely old lady, 95-year-old grandmother, lived in Japan, and she was really into Tetris on the original Game Boy. She got it when it was a new system, and then when she got to 95 years old, her health had started to decline a little bit, and then she was really upset when a Game Boy stopped working. And then her daughter tried to go and get her a replacement Game Boy. Now... You know, it can be a bit hit and miss walking around second-hand markets, that kind of mm. thing. You've been to Japan. There are some yeah, pretty yeah, amazing yeah. gaming markets yeah, yeah, out there. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, if you want the, the same model, you know, grandma might have got used to the controls as one advance or something yeah. like that. But the, she couldn't actually find a good condition original Game Boy with Tetris when she was looking for one. So she decided instead that she'd write a letter to Nintendo to see if they could repair mm. the original Game Boy. So they had a look at it. it turned out that it was damaged beyond repair. They yeah. couldn't do anything with it. But <laughs> they actually found... An original Game Boy still in their warehouse. And they sent it to them. And they sent it to them for free. That's amazing, isn't yes. it? So Granny could continue to play Tetris. That is amazing. Yeah. And what I really like as well is like the letter is obviously yeah. it's all in Japanese and stuff. But it's good to see that they actually read it. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like usually these things are just like thrown to one side, do you know what I mean? Like or it just goes to an office somewhere and it's never looked at. So it's really nice to see that they actually 
went above and beyond, I guess. I, th- I think it's maybe even that Japanese kind of thing of respecting elders. Yeah, or, of course. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and yeah, that's a really nice move of them to do. And I love as well that Nintendo have still got new Game Boys in the warehouse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where is that warehouse? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's go find it. Yeah, I need one. Now, we could be actually holding on to our systems for a bit longer in the future due to uh, some new rules that apparently mean that it could be the end of throwaway culture in the UK. Is this right? Uh, yeah, so um, we're getting new rules from the European Commission, and even after Brexit in the UK, this is going to still count. Right. And what it is, is it's a project, and it's all about the kind of right to repair. So I don't know if you've started to hear about these movements at the moment, which are, you know, companies trying to stop people repairing stuff. Or, Apple. Or, Apple <laughs> or having computers that go out of date really quickly, Apple, or yeah, yeah. hardware, <laughs> hardware that yeah. kind of breaks. Well, what they want to do is they want to make, um, get rid of this permanent obsolescence, which is happening, and they want to create hardware that is actually replaceable, that you can repair at home, and that's going to cut down on stuff like waste. Yeah. You know, it's going to cut down on the amount of materials that are needed in the world to actually produce these things. Well, you know what's really interesting about this, and you mentioned a moment ago in the last story about how I've been to Japan. Yeah. When I was in Japan, I've got a friend over there who we met up with, but we went. me and my wife went around the markets and stuff, and not far from a lot of the gaming markets and stuff, there was like, um, you know, proper, proper market stalls, not like shops, like selling loads of gadgets and tech and stuff like that. And there was like loads and loads and loads of like repair shops, but for your old phones, like the phones that you have on the wall with a cable and everything can like well, fax like, like machines. landlines. Yeah, landlines like and fax wow. machines and stuff. And I was like, what's that all about? And there were so many like parts for them as well for sale and wow. like old school, really old school vacuum cleaners and you know, just real 80s and 90s tech. So I asked my friend who's lived out there for like three years now and he was just like, yeah, if they don't get rid of their stuff. Like they just fix it because it's working and it's reliable. So I don't know what, what the crack is with Japan and how they do things yeah. and stuff. But it's really interesting that like it sounds similar and I think like that is something we should be doing in the UK. Well, it's stuff like, you know, you used to get laptops and they'd have like sealed in RAM. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to upgrade that, or or even your phone battery. Mm. You wouldn't be able to actually take it out, and repla- it now, replace the battery. You know, and uh, that really needs to change. And hopefully, this law is going to come in and change it. And you know, they're saying worldwide citizens' repair shops yeah. are kind of popping up. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's going to be a thing that uh, gets back to the consumers, so they can actually have control over their products. I think it's really good. We've already seen it in recent years. I mean, Apple recently got, you know, I think, I think they got fined, didn't they, for intentionally slowing down older One iPhones. One and a half billion or something yeah, like that, wasn't it? And, yeah. th- and that, that was a positive move, that the fact that, you know, they were intentionally slowing down these old mm. devices. We've got this upgrade culture where who'd have thought, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, that we'd all be happy paying a grand every two years for a new mobile. It's, it's like It's isn't just it? suddenly happened. Who, who's all... that guy on YouTube who goes around in Japan and builds a whole iPhone out of... All, uh, oh, I've seen all it. the yeah, tiny parts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've seen that. <laughs> and there's another guy watching America. He runs like an Apple repair shop. Strange things. That's yeah, what he's doing. Yeah, and it's like um, he, he shows you like all the tricks they do to make it non-user repairable and oh, stuff. Oh, really? And I, I, that really frustrates me. It's like, you know, I, I do like Apple products. Mm, you know, disclaimer, mm. I've, I've got an Apple Watch and AirPods and everything. But then I look at them and I think, already I've had my... My AirPods may be a year and a half, and they're already like not, not getting me through a full day. No way to change the batteries in them. Yeah. Send my watch, you know, if, the, if I'm not getting a full day of it, you need yeah. to buy a new one. Yeah. They don't make them replaceable. So I get comments on YouTube as well of, of some people, which is like remarkable. Even if I'm maybe showing like, I don't know, like a PlayStation 3 or an Xbox 
Xbox 360 device. People will be like, what are you still using that crap for? Upgrade to like Xbox One's out now. There is such a culture of like, has to be the latest mm, all the time. But, but then you, you have know. your Atari 8-bit, you just change the capacitors in yeah. there and it's working again, you know, another 12 years. It's crazy. Well, I think that is why there are so many, you know, retro gaming systems. We've still got Commodore 64s and stuff running at home. I don't think my um, Apple MacBook Pro is still going to be working in like <laughs> no. 10 years, let alone 2030, you know what I mean? So I think that is definitely a positive move. We can keep on to our products a little bit longer. Now, actually speaking of, uh, if you do want to replace your own product, so if it's broken, you can now get a Commodore 64 replica PCB, so the motherboard, without any of the components on there, for $35. Yeah, this is absolutely crazy. It's called the 60 clone. Nice. And, and what it is, is it's a, a replica PCB. Now, this doesn't contain any of the parts. So you do get a few parts, which is the... Uh, 6526 CIAs, you right. get uh, the kernel, a few ROMs, a few things like that, little video adapter as well. But the main idea of this board is if you've had any damage to your old Commodore 64 board or any breakages, then you can take all your components out and then put them on this new board. Or you can replace the parts with um, modern alternatives as well. And that's going to last another 30 years, if you get one yeah. of these. And, I mean, they're all often like replacement parts that you can buy now as well. You could essentially, I mean, I've seen people, Retro Man Cave did a video, didn't he? Essentially building like a new Amiga just out of all new parts. Yeah, and yeah. this is going to be a lot cheaper than getting one of your new C64 minis. Mm. If you, you just get an old one, take all the components off, resold them onto this new board, it's going to last a long time, you know. As long as you know which end to hold a soldering iron, which uh, <laughs> Joe's like, what? <laughs> Thanks. I do like it when they do come up with stuff like this. I mean, there are actually a few like guys we know, we've seen them, we went to the um, the Amiga show in Germany. You walked around a lot of the stores there, and a lot of people have done like, essentially reverse engineer these old machines and made yeah. their own versions of it. And then you see, like, you know, the, the guys that actually made the original walking around looking at it going, I like what you've done oh, there. Yeah, yeah, you've added a new, <laughs> yeah. a new exciting feature. Right? Yeah. So it, you know, it's way beyond my uh, my skill level to do anything like that. But I do think it's very cool. Um, another cool little project that Joe sent me over is you know we've been talking that we we really want a, a new Nintendo sixty four, whether that be like a handheld or a mini version. Someone got sick of waiting for Nintendo, and he's done it himself. Yeah. So this is a YouTuber called uh, Smacked Sam, um, who's he's like three D printed his own portable n64 which he's made <laughs> um and it, it looks it looks really bizarre uh which i think is like it needs to because it's n64 that controller that you controller can't really it yeah so um but it's really cool but he's got footage here, here of it like up and running playing and apparently it can play all n64 games because uh, it does actually have the uh, expansion pack included into it built into it and it runs the cartridges. It's original hardware. So you plug it into wow. the back. It essentially looks like a big Game Boy Advance. Yeah, I was going to say it's got the Game Boy Advance. Uh, with yeah. the Nintendo 64 logo plonked, you know, on the bottom of it. Um, and then it's just a bit wider and a bit taller and stuff. But yeah, apparently it plays. It runs it perfectly. So This looks crazy. Really, really nice little job he's yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. obviously it's, you know, just the one. He'll probably get a cease and desist from, <laughs> you know, from, from Nintendo before now, this episode even goes if out. If he was a grandma... Yeah, really, really, really cool. Really interesting. Uh, just that, you know, he's got GoldenEye running on it. He's got Mario 64 running on it. I would like to see Donkey Kong 64 and Zelda Majora's Masks for proof of the expansion pack, but apparently it's in there. 
All he needs now is a rumble pack and it would pop. Yeah, 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 yeah. That'd be amazing. It would rattle it to bits <laughs> yeah. looking at it, I imagine. You know what would be cool though if you could have like um like a link kind of cables. You know, you oh, used to play your game with yeah, yeah. link. That'd be yeah. awesome. Like I mean, there's Pokemon not much information Stadium on what or, he's yeah. what he's done. I'm wondering if he's ripped an N sixty four apart and then put it in the three D. I wouldn't think the motherboard would fit in there. That's got to be emulation know. somewhere. Yeah, yeah but then how's it reading the cart, you know? Yeah. There are ways of doing that, I guess. You just uh, don't know or something. But, yeah. Yeah, it's cool, though. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check out a few more. I mean, apparently he's, he's on about putting the design up for sale. So people oh, really? might be able to make their own, which is quite interesting. So yeah, that's, when, that's when you attract Nintendo's attention. But I do love seeing little fan projects like that. It's really cool. Now, before we get into our guests this week, of course, um, we do appreciate, you know, times are a bit hard for people at the moment, but we do have a patron running right now, um, which we've been blown away by your support over the last couple of weeks on this. Now, the reason we set it up is a little recap, because I know we do have like new listeners. We, we record our show in a studio which you know, a lot of people do kind of compliment us on the audio quality of our show, which is something we've always prided ourselves on. Um, the fact that we do it in a proper broadcast studio, but we don't own the studio. And uh, that's one of the reasons that we're in here, like, you know, at nearly 10 o'clock at night. We have to work around a schedule. We can only get in here for a few hours a week. Often we have guests that we have to try and, oh, we can't do that time. Can you do that time? You know, we, we go back and forth with them for like weeks, trying to arrange a time when we can get in the studio to record it. So we came up with an idea that we want to get around that by building our own podcasting studio. And that would mean not only can we come in 24 hours a day, whenever we want, we can get guests on. You know, you could come in at three o'clock in the morning if it was our studio and record it. Exactly. It kind of frees us up, but also like, you know, you're going to get something for that, which yeah. is an ad-free episode of the podcast. You may even get that delivered early, depending on when we record it. I, I've released a few episodes actually up to two or three days early to patrons. Yeah. Ooh. and uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. We're going to be releasing certain extra stuff, like a little documentary we were Which should be out on. by now, actually. Yeah. yeah on our Patreon feed, I believe. So yeah, it's the thing. We've got a few little bonuses there. And um, really, I mean, we're asking for your guys' support, which we appreciate. If you can't do it now, maybe in a couple of months' time, that's fine. We're, we're in a major rush, but we'd like, we're kind of an aim of doing it around the summer, hopefully. Yeah, once all this stuff's over, yeah, yeah. then we'll try to get the studio up and running, you know. But thanks to you guys, we're already well on our way to doing it. I mean, obviously, we're going to need like... <laughs> Money like for deposits, then we need to build the studio, soundproof it all, and everything. I bought all the equipment. I mean, I paid about five thousand pounds yeah, for wow. the microphones and the yeah. mixer and the mic processors and everything. So we got all the stuff. We just need the space. And of course, for uh, backing us on Patreon, you will get a mention in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, and you can tell all your friends. You can share it on your social media. I help these guys get that studio. I help keep the Retro Hour podcast going, and we'll keep bringing out the show every Friday thanks to your support. And for doing it, you'll get a mention in the Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you so much to Dave. David Hall, Richard Nicholas, Peter Lingback, Danny McDermott, and Ollie J, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find all that in our show notes. You can get them on your podcast clients. Have a little look in there, or we've got links on the front page of our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat this week, talking about some classic Commodore 64 games with the amazing Carlton Henley, let's do our retro picks. Now, this is where every week we kind of talk about something that might be a little website or a YouTube video or a game that we've been playing, just something that's interested us personally in the world of retro gaming. Now, this week, I want to give a mention to our good friend Stephen Fletcher. Now, we all see Steve at shows. I love Steve. Yeah, Steve's a lovely guy, and he's a documentary maker as well. And what he's actually produced before was the Commodore story, yeah. which was an absolutely fantastic documentary, all about Commodore, but also going into the Amiga, which was like Commodore's later machines. And he went all around the world. You know, he went to Leonard Tramiel's house, who was Jack Tramiel's son, um, did an interview at his house with him. 
you know, no expenses spared in it. He, he, really, he, put, he put so much effort into it. You know, I think it took him a good couple of years to do yeah. all the filming of it. Um, and now we were chatting to him at an Amiga show last year and he said, the Amiga scene is so vibrant, I think it deserves a new movie about the Amiga in 2020. So he's doing it all again. He's going back around the world and this time he's meeting fans and he's meeting people that are making new hardware for classic systems and recreations and upgrades and that kind of thing. And this is called the Amiga 2020 documentary. Now, it's running on Kickstarter at the moment and it did actually smash the goal in around 24 hours. Yeah, he's just even smashed it further and he's yeah, yeah, he's doing very well at the moment. There's a couple of weeks left, but obviously, I mean, that's the thing about Kickstarters. You get to the point where the goal is, that doesn't mean that's all you need. That means he's literally got just enough to make it. Mm. So anything extra you get over that is going to make the documentary even better, allow him to do more and interview more people around the world. So if you'd like to back it, I mean, I'm sure anyone that watched the Commodore story will be really familiar with how good Steve's work is and a uh, little disclaimer we're both in it me and you Ravi I'm actually yeah. in the I'm actually in the uh, I was the, literally the just scrolling video. through the Kickstarter <laughs> and uh, when you get to the contributors section the first person mentioned is Ravi yeah yeah. so I'm, I'm going to be awesome. doing some um, hosting and kind of uh, helping tell the story of Amiga like a voiceover yeah kind of just like a uh, uh, keeping it uh, narration or something like that yeah and I'm in the uh, <laughs> the trailer little disclaimer it was at Amiga Germany. I think I went to bed at five o'clock in the morning and he filmed this at nine o'clock. You're always hung over in these things. <laughs> he always wants to film me on a Sunday morning at a show. So, uh, yeah, that's why you probably, I'm, I've got bags under my eyes, bigger than my suitcase that was behind me, I think, at the time. But yeah, it's going to be an incredible movie and it's great to see that people are supporting it. I'll put a link in the, uh, in the show notes if you want to back that as well. What have you been checking out this week, Joe? Uh, so, a YouTuber. Um, I've been checking out, been watching some of his videos recently. I've been following him for a while. Uh, but a guy called Gilly a kid who I, I just I really like him he's just like he doesn't put an act on yeah. he doesn't like mess about or anything like that he's just straight do you know what I mean and he's not like particularly angry or particularly excitable he's just entertaining and he's just got a good voice to listen to and he looks like you he does look a little bit like me. He's probably actually a little bit better looking than me. Well, I, didn't, I didn't want to say. Of course not, handsome uh, Joe. Thank you, thank you. That one's my handsome um, Joe. But yeah, I just wanted to give him a shout out. Um, been watching a lot of his videos recently. And, you know, he covers all all genres of gaming. And, you know, he kind of covers a lot of 80s, a lot of 90s, a lot of 2000s. A lot of Game Boy stuff. stuff as well. Isn't a lot it? of Game Boy, a lot of Game Boy Advance. Um, you know, and he does a lot of like, you know, he goes on Switch. Yeah. Uh, on the Switch store, on the store, and he would just like buy like ten games for a dollar each and just review them. And he's just so straight talking, you know. He'll just be like, "This game is awful." Like he's <laughs> he's not bothered, you know. No what holds I mean? barred. No holds barred. But he's not like angry and over the top. So it's just it's just nice to watch. Gilly, so, yeah. the, Gilly the kid. Gilly the kid. Uh, you've been checking out a website. Then it's a website that's been around for a while. Yeah. So this is the fantastic LemonAmiga.com. Now this site is totally about Amiga computers and uh, we make no kind of... No, no qualms about the fact yeah, that... Yeah, yeah, we make no qualms about the fact that we absolutely You love, don't hide it. <laughs> love Amiga, yeah. We're not uh, closet. And this... Um, <laughs> <laughs> not closet Amigans, no. And this site is absolutely fantastic because it lists pretty much every game that's ever come out on the Amiga and it has it in different systems so you can find out the details and you do not know how useful this has been for reviews for the Retro Hour because... Yeah. You get individual people's little comments and reviews about the game, and it gives you a really good picture of the game. But also, they have a really cool little tool. It's uh, in an area called Lemonade, 
and it's the game file scanner, what it will actually do is it will scan your whole hard drive for ADF files, and even if they're hidden inside zip folders, it will find them and list them. So oh, you wow. get an okay. accurate picture of the actual Amiga titles that you've got in your system. I do love the fact they have all the links to the, the manuals and the cheats as well. Yeah, and it's and it's beautifully done as well. It's all, all in pixel art. It's like just really nice sight, one of my favourite ones. Someone <laughs> someone the other day actually, I saw them talking about Lemon Amiga. And I think they put a link to like, you know, uh, it was like YouTube in 2006. YouTube today looks totally different. Lemon Amiga in 2006, and it hasn't changed. Yeah. <laughs> Literally the same design. But again, like, like you're saying before, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So exactly. Yeah, it looks good. So if you want to check out our picks, that and everything else we talked about will be in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Right now, let's get our Commodore 64 on with this week's special guest, Carlton Henley. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Going to get some stories about brilliant games on the Commodore 64 in particular back in the day. Let's welcome on Carlton Hanley. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. Now, uh, before we get into the games and stuff that you worked on back in the day and uh, the projects that you're doing now, because I know you're quite back into retro at the moment, let's kind of wind things right back to the beginning. I mean, what kind of first got you into video games or computers back in the day? I, I had an older brother. He was about four years older than me, so and this was the late, not a bit of late 70s, and he, he, he got a one of those little Pong machines you have. You remember those, the Benettons? Yeah. Yeah, so he got one of them and we used to play that together and just got it really into games from then. And he ended up getting new computers and eventually I think I, think I took over from him getting a Commodore in 84. You know, the old trick your dad into thinking it's for your homework. So those kind of Benettone machines, they were like just a couple of choices, didn't you have? Uh, was it amazing when you went onto the Commodore and kind of realised there was a huge selection of games? Yes, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was totally different. I mean, it wasn't even colour that. I mean, I'm not so sure we even had a colour TV though when I got my Commodore, to be honest. We weren't allowed to use the front room TV. But yeah, we, we couldn't afford the games though, obviously. I think my Commodore came with international soccer and cartridge, and my brother had saved up some money and we bought um, Daily Thomas's Decathlon, I think, was the first oh, game. Was a joystick destroyer, wasn't it? Oh, well, we, had, we genuinely did <laughs> Our Commodore came with... Um, a Commodore joystick, which was a bit of a rip-off of the old Atari joysticks, and we snapped it in half in about the second day, I think, um, which was a bit of a disaster. But well, luckily, we could use our old Atari joysticks. I did have a... Yeah, you reminded me that. I did have an Atari in between that, a VCS. So we had some selection of games, but again, I think they were they were £30 even then, the game. So it was at once a Christmas, one game per Christmas time deal. Well, how did you actually get into programming then, like, from becoming a player to a creator, um, I had we we had a friend and he he could program. He, he was writing things in Basic and he'd written this um, game called Monster Manager. It was a bit like um, Football Manager but with monsters. <laughs> if there could be such you can write such thing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, how, how do you do that? You know, you don't consider. I don't think I'd ever considered that you could actually program these things. And he had um, uh, uh, an assembler program that he lent me. And I just took it from there. <laughs> yeah, this is quite interesting to me too, to get behind the scenes. Quite what, difficult as well. Was it mainly like an assembler? That, did you go straight in with machine code then, or did you learn in basic first? Um, no, straight to machine code. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that same thing, you know. But you know, uh, 6502 is pretty, pretty limited, and Commodore Basic is pretty awful. 
So you you wouldn't I wouldn't advise anyone to learn from Commodore <laughs> and, and Basic. Yeah, it was all it's, peaks and pokes. <laughs> well, exactly, that's it. So that's how machine code is. It's the same thing. It's peak and pokes and memory about and things. You might as well go straight to the just straight to the hub of it. And like I say, I give, given me this assembler, so that was what piqued my interest rather than actually writing in Basic. Were there many like software labels or, or programmers that you were particularly a fan of? Oh uh, yeah, Braybrook. Yeah. You know the, the usuals really. Braybrook. Um, Marjorie McLean, Jeff Cramond. There were, there were more than programmers, a lot of them, weren't they, as well? There was something I never managed to achieve. You know, A lot of them could, they did all the graphics, all the design, sort of incredible people. I've not got <laughs> any of those other talents, sadly. Yeah, you're right, because then a lot of them were kind of in a lot of games, or like a one-man kind of band, weren't they? You know, or bedroom coders, even. Yeah, I mean, it's still happening a bit these days with, um, you know, a lot of the indie stuff, you know, these one-man bands who can make incredible things, and, you know, Jonathan Blow and them make it so creative, and yet such talented programmers and artists, it's, it's a little bit weird to me. <laughs> well, let's talk about the arcades as well. I mean, obviously, that was kind of peak arcade era. Were you much of an arcade-goer? Is there any games that you made, like, a beeline for? Um, yeah, yeah, we used, to, um, we used to go to Blackpool when we could. We, we obviously didn't have enough money to playing much um, but but um we we we'd watch just watch the track modes but the, the big ones i remember probably i was probably slightly older when i had a little bit more money maybe like operation wolf and power drift space area seeing those sort of things you know again that was like seeing the commodore from the atari i think it's just a, a massive step change in what video games could be not not so great on the gameplay though i don't think no someone yeah. <laughs> look back now you look back, sadly, you know, all, all show and not much. I mean, we've got an arcade club here, very near my house, sadly just uh, close to there, uh, for the foreseeable future, but but to see all those little machines again, it still still gives me a thrill. Oh, it's a fantastic yeah, can, place, yeah. Yeah, have you been? Yeah, it's a, yeah, an incredible place. Actually, uh, no, no, I didn't know when I went. He was a trainee with me for two weeks at Walking Circles as a trainee Commodore programmer. Oh, is this and Andy runs arcade club? Yeah, Sandy. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so he, he's from, he, obviously it's nearby because I came to him. Yeah, and he, he came and he wanted to try programming and we gave him a job, but um, didn't quite work out, but, you know, he's had the last laugh, I think. Yeah, small world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was odd. He, he remembered me. He's got, apparently, he's, apparently he's got a lot of my old source code discs and things that I thought were lost in time. He's such a collector. Yeah. He's, he's got sort of all sorts of random stuff like that and he keeps inviting me to go around and um, go through it, but you never find a time, do you? That's awesome that he's kept it all. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So what was really special about the C64 and why did you kind of prefer it over other 8-bits? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I like both the 8-bit machines. Well, the, the Spectrum, um, we'd, kind of, we'd, swap, we'd swap with friends. I'd have his a Spectrum for a weekend. He'd have my Commodore. He'd want to play Exploding Fist and things like that. I'd want to play Wheelie. But the Commodore games were more my, my wheelhouse with... Um, books games, the fast action stuff, Drop Zone, that's the stuff. And Pit Stop 2, there was nothing like that on the spectrum for me. I don't remember. It was only the ultimate games you were jealous of, I think, as a Commodore owner. Well, let's talk about the games that you made. I mean, Spitting Image was your first release game, if I'm correct. And obviously that was uh, a, a big TV show that was on then. It was a very high-profile release. How did yeah. you get like such a, a high-profile title for like your first release game then? Um uh, Walking Circles was a tiny company. There were six of us, really. Walking Circles. Someone did the Amstrad inspection versions and stuff. But we'd done. We, they never did Commodore 64 games before I joined. 
and Dark, but they've done a lot of work for Darmark. They did Living Daylights and um, Cattrap. Do you remember the design the game competition in, in yeah. Crash Magazine? Yeah, yeah. Cattrap. Um, oddly, Cattrap, what Million Mall is based on, but <laughs> same there. Not that game. So they've done a lot of that. And then, so Darmark basically hired us. I think four of my five games at the Walking Circles were for Darmark, and Spitting Image just happened to be the first one. It wasn't actually the first game I did at Walking Circles, though. It was the first released. But I did a game called Wanderer for Elite. Elite Systems, what they call But they didn't release that until after Spitting Image came out. It was quite odd to be working on something so famous. I, yeah. think, I, was, I think I was probably 16 at the time. So, if our American listeners don't know, Spitting Image is a, a satirical puppet show. Yeah. And it was... <laughs> A huge cultural shift. It was absolutely massive. Did you manage to talk to any of the staff, uh, Chris Barry, any of the guys that did the voices, or did they have any input on the game? We did. We didn't work with the um, people who did the, the thing, but we did work with the writers and uh, Jeff Atkinson, who was a big, a big comedy writer at the time. I think he was chief writer on that. Did write, did write the, the the game spec such as it was, and the there's an intro and a storyline in the game that that yeah, that they wrote and provided us, and that formed the basis for the game. And did they have a, a, a chicken song, a C64 version? <laughs> <laughs> I think chicken song came out just after we'd yeah. finished. Otherwise, we'd have definitely done it. But um, David Whitaker did a good version of the actual main TV theme anyway. So. Well, when you, obviously, when the game came out, I mean, having such a high-profile title like that, I imagine there was a, a quite a big promotion run. I mean, did you have to do much to promote the game? Were you like going out and it, <laughs> visiting magazines and that kind of thing? And what, what happened? Uh, we did. We did go to Crash Magazine. Um, yeah, we took a drive out to Ludlow. I, I, I mean, I was that. I was properly fanboying when we went there. I was expecting this big tower. I used to call it Zap Towers, and I thought it's going to be this big fancy thing. And it, you know, it was a tiny little scruffy office above an estate agent in Ludlow. Uh, and yeah, when they, I think I've said this before, they they completed the Spectrum version on the first go. The reviewers well, so were there promoting it. It's pretty mortifying. How long did it take them? Well, I think ten minutes maybe no of button, button mashing, and I think we went back and actually changed it a little bit to try and improve it after that. But well, we were just more jealous. They, they actually won a competition at the time in I think it was in Zap and Crash that you could you could win a puppet made if you, if you did it. And I don't, I don't know who's got that. Someone did win the competition, and it was like thousands of pounds worth of prize. But yeah, they got to go to the actual place where they made the puppets and and uh, get a puppet made of yourself that's awesome. we weren't offered that <laughs> um, i mean you mentioned that about you know visiting the magazine and stuff and i was looking through a few of the reviews before we started recording and i mean you know it didn't get great ratings i think the one gave it 34 percent. crash gave it 65 percent as well i mean was that kind of a bit disappointing for your first release game um i think we knew it wasn't great um and reviews back then were much much, much more honest yeah. I think than they are now, you know. So I think we were probably expecting that. I think, I think the Commodore version did much worse than what you're saying now. I think Zap gave it less than forty percent, and in fact, Wanderer, which I was talking about before, got sixteen percent in Crash. So my first two games <laughs> barely scraped fifty percent between them. It was a, it was a bad start. <laughs> I would I would say I'd lucky to keep a job. I think. I remember, you know, reading about walking circles, and I, I, I think, you know, if I remember rightly, they kind of did, did they go out of business in the early '90s? I want to say they're around for a few years. I remember, but 
Uh, again, they're not really a company that you read much about, and like looking online for them, there's not really much about them anymore. And I, I'm no. quite, quite curious just to find out a bit more about the company itself, and what was it like working there, and what, what was the team like, and any memories of it that stand out? Well, it was a great place, you know, like I said, you know, I mean, I was at school, I was at school, and, you know, dreaming of getting a job in, in video games, and not thinking it was even slightly possible, and then turns out there's this little company very near where I lived, and I went along on a train, uh, it was a youth training scheme in Run by the government here, and I uh, got the job because I, was, I guess I was local and I could program a little bit. But it was actually from a, you pro, if you wanted to, it was the remnants of a company called Design Design who were much sort of more well respected. I think on the spectrum, the Dark Star and Hall of Things and stuff like that. So once they stopped publishing and a couple of people left, what was left became Walking Circles and. Um, and we're just a development house instead. But yeah, it was a great place. Graham Stafford uh, taught, taught me everything, you know, supported me really well. Like I I was very young at the time. I can't pretend that it was all my own work. So the British video games industry and computer games industry at the time, I mean, when we're getting into the late 80s, it, it did seem like a very exciting place to be. I mean, did you kind of have much to do with other companies and were you quite ingrained in the industry? How did you find it? Yeah, um, yeah, a bit. Um, possibly not so much in my Commodore days, um, we were a little bit isolated, but there was certainly Manchester going into the 90s and stuff. Manchester was a hotbed of um, a, lot, a lot of companies, um, Creations and Tatex and that. So when I, when I started working at Tatex and stuff, we started mingling with a lot more people because we'd all go out into Manchester and stuff. Yeah, and it was a, it was, it was a great time. You know, we were young people with reasonable disposable income and, and things like that. And it was a, hardly the wolf of Wall Street, but, you know, it was a... It was um, a lot better than a lot of my friends were doing. What was the story with Wanderer, and uh, what inspired that? Um, it was a it was a QL game. Do you remember that? The yeah, Sinclair QL. QL. Oh, Sinclair, yeah. Sinclair QL. Sorry. So I think it was a QL game, and it had this gimmick with um, real 3D. If you wore the um, purple and green glasses, and Steve Wilcox at Elite had seen it at a show, a trade show, bought up the rights immediately, and then what the conversion we. Again, we did it totally unsuitable for Commodore 64, and the 3D didn't really work on a Spectrum because because Spectrum colours were hardly great, and the the game itself wasn't wasn't particularly good. So yeah, we 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 finished it. I don't know whether Steve Wilcox had suddenly realised that it wasn't that good a game to start with. The conversions were passable. The QL was an interesting platform as well, because that was kind of like uh, Sinclair's business machine, wasn't it? Yeah, there were loads of computers coming out around then, weren't there? That, you know, everyone thought, everyone was giving it a go of Dragons and Einsteins, and it was a weird time, but, you know, no one was supporting them. I think I think Design Designs supported the Dragon quite a bit. No one at my school had one, and, no one, and certainly no one bought a QL, did they? No. <laughs> Despite Clive's um, advert jumping over... Jumping about 30 feet in there, I think. Yeah, it's still on YouTube, that, isn't it? It's a funny idea. <laughs> oh, I'll have to look up. I think I'm just remembering it. Oh, you also did a C64 version of All Points Bulletin from uh, Atari. It's kind of like an above-view GTA-style uh, game from the police perspective. Do you remember doing that? And do you remember anything specific about it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's my finest. Um, from, from back in the day, that was the finest thing we did um, um, again, it was for Dormark. They'd got the Tengen license. We were going to do either that or Tubin. Um, and I remember going to an arcade with some friends to have a look at both of them. 
And I was saying, I hope we get that two minutes back again. <laughs> um, and simpler game to write, but we got APB. But but it was quite challenging. Again, Graham, Graham led the programming on that, on the spectrum. And we did some sort of crazy things we probably shouldn't have, like put the full map in. So it's a huge map. It's 32K uncompressed. So it decompresses in real time as you're driving about in strips, which is why it doesn't run at what everyone wanted on the Commodore back in the day, 50 hertz and stuff. But we never had QA people. I never saw QA or designers or anything until until even after Tatex. So we released that game, and I've since found out that if you get past day 16, I think it just crashes. All right. <laughs> because we, we didn't have any data for any more days, and we didn't think to put a game ending in or... You know, we'd never finished the arcade machine. Probably too hard to get there anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't remember. Yeah, no one, no one would have got there. I mean, it might have been 32 days, so yeah, but yeah, it's too hard. It's too hard a game. There's certain things we couldn't put into the to the 8-bit versions that helped the gameplay a bit. Like there were like bar- bar- the arcade machine puts barriers up on some of the road to to guide you to where the APB APBs are. But we didn't do that, so you could just drive about randomly. It was more like an open-world driving game in the end. Yeah, yeah very, very <laughs> and it scored really well in reviews as well, didn't it? Yes, yeah, so it was my only Zap Sizzler, and I uh, got an Olive Air front cover. I got in touch with him recently, um, to because you can buy the print, uh, well, you can buy prints or the original artwork, but but it's been lost, the oh, APB no cover, way. so yeah, so there's, no, there's not even a, a print version of it, so yeah. Well, speaking of things that have been lost, I mean, I was um, reading before on uh, Games That Weren't, which is a website all about like video games that never actually got released in the end. There's a game that you worked on called uh, Behemoth. What mm-hmm. was kind of the story with that game then? Well, this was, like I said, we, we weren't getting any contract working because Commodore 64 stuff was fading out. We were doing some Amiga bits, but again, not really anything that was contracted to us. So we were just trying to make some of the sales companies. We were, someone else took over an Amiga game. I think we were doing Lemming, a Lemmings part on Amstrad, and then it was like, I was the Commodore programmer, let's, let's copy Armalite and see if we can sell it to one of the, the, the budget companies um, just to tick us over. But, but by, by the time we got anything near sellable, it, we weren't getting any bites, and then the, the company, that's when about the time the company closed, I think. Have you still got any copies of it, like the source code or anything? or? I, I found the source code and uh, yeah, and I actually converted it to a modern, well, to a, a PC compiler nowadays. So I, is it is it not on games that weren't? I think you can still maybe download. I managed to make a PRG of it, and I think you can run it in an emulator. Oh really? Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll have to have a look at that again. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, so yeah, like I say, it's a, it's no Armalite for sure, but hmm. it probably it could have been better had we developed it further. Well, I mean, you did keep doing Commodore 64 games for a while. There's another one, um, Skull and Crossbones, that was like a pirate fighting game. Um, do you remember much about that? Yeah, it's another, that was another of the Tengen ones after APB. We got we got sent that. We used to get the arcade machines in the um, office. That was probably the funniest part of it, because APB, APB arcade machine was quite good. We did hard driving as well. Not, not the sequel to hard driving. That was the best machine we ever had in the office. We could, uh, my, me and my friends used to go down. Like I said, I was st- still at the time, I was only 17 or 18, so we'd actually go in on, on the bus on a Saturday just to play the arcade cabs in the office. Um, but <laughs> Skull and Crossboards wasn't one of them, and I'm not so sure the arcade cab even came out in the UK. But yeah, it was a very poor, badly remembered Atari. Yeah, I, I think we did an alright conversion of it um, for what it was. But... 
Having an arcade machine in the office that must have been quite a distraction when you had to sit there. Oh uh, yeah, we, um, it wasn't in the old office. We used to have a separate room, so they were a bit out of sight, out of mind. Um, but yeah, when we moved to one the, the newer offices, it was all in one room, and yeah, we'd spend too much time. Like I said, especially uh, stunt driving was that before to hard driving. Mm. we used to be brilliant on it though. You could go into it. You know, you, know, you see these uh, people in arcades who are really good. Um, I've we, never been we, one of them. We were, <laughs> oh, no, well, we were those because, well, because we effectively would have cost us about three hundred pounds in ten p's to get to the level we were at, just playing each other and trying to beat the ghost driver and things. So I assume it was uh, free to play. You weren't using your wages. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> no, 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 we didn't have. No, we wouldn't have been able to spend three hundred pounds. We spend our wages from back then. That's for sure. Well. Yeah. When the 16-bit platforms started to take off, did you see a sharp decline in C64 work? Yeah, I mean, I think that was what brought the end of Walking Circles. Really, we did do some, we did, um, we did do some Amiga parts. Um, I, I never did any of the actual official contracted work. I, I wrote again. This is on. This is on games that weren't. I think I wrote a prototype called Bloodline, which was based on an old design design game called Hold Things. So it had procedurally generated levels. And the enemies looked a bit like paradroidy types. It was, it, it was actually, it was working all right. It, it was working all right, but again, we couldn't couldn't sell it to be able to fund enough to develop it beyond what was effectively a prototype. How long had you worked there at that stage, Jens? It must have been quite sad, you know, after being there for a few years, the kind of decline of the company. Yeah, yeah I think I thought it was a job for life, you know, because yeah. like I say, it was my first job, and it was like, oh, this is it. I'm going to be writing Commodore 64 games for the rest of my life. But I think I was, I think I'd have been there 87. Five, five years, maybe. It seems, seems a long time, now to say I only did five published games, I think. That seems a long time, because that's not the amount of time it took to develop a game back in the day. You know, APB probably took four or five months maximum, Then that was the longest one we did, I think. You're always playing arcades. That's what took <laughs> <a> while, <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Playing arcades and watching um, Nightmare on a Friday afternoon. Oh, yeah. On Netflix <laughs> Tell us what we used to do. Yeah, I love Nightmare. Yeah, well, yeah, oh, yeah. It was a great show. Well, you worked with the uh, Pickford brothers as well at Z2. I mean, any stories you remember from that time and what, what were they like to work with? Um, that was a great place. I'd, I'd actually met Steve and John at, at um, Creations. We worked, Software Creations, we worked together there, but they left to farm, to farm Z2. Um, and then they had, they had some work, a uh, project they wanted to do, and they, they approached me to come. I went, oh, they actually interviewed me in a pub in Manchester. Nice. Uh, yeah, and I and I, I was actually driving, so I stayed sober whilst they got drunk. So I think I managed to get a couple of uh, a few extra quid out of them on my salary. <laughs> Sign uh, this contract. Yeah, <laughs> but then but then they contacted me about two weeks before I was due to start and said, "Oh, Steve's had to pull out of a trip to New York um, for for the game we're going to do. Dragon. It was called Dragon Tales, and it was by um, children's television workshop, the Sesame Street people. Mm. It was." It was a very popular cartoon in America. I don't think it did so well. He says, oh, so can you fill in for Steve? We've got to go for four days for this one meeting. <laughs> oh, no, I'll see if I can manage that. Yeah, so my first day on the job was actually in New York for Z2. Wow. And uh, I think we went to San Francisco the year after as well for a company GDC trip. So it was a great place. But sadly, I don't think we got paid by a company. I shouldn't probably not say this on my business life, right? <laughs> I think I think there was some trouble with getting paid for uh, some work we'd actually for the ET game we'd done the actually got released and uh, it put too much financial pressure on us and we were by by Warthog, which I didn't I didn't go along to moved on at that time. Well, you also um, developed titles for the sake of Game Gear, 
What was that system like, and did it change the way that you kind of worked working for a handheld? It wasn't. It wasn't very far. I mean, from a Commodore 64 game, game really. It had, it had better colours, but it had some oddly worse sprites and things. Um, and you didn't really develop it as an handheld. It was the dev kit was pretty much a master system dev kit, but with a little screen you could plug onto this. But you just had a big ugly circuit board on your desk plugged into a PC. So yeah, I don't think we. You didn't write stuff basing it around being handheld. It was just someone's got. I mean, we barely handheld with it. Game kits are quite big <laughs> now. They're quite big by today's standards. But it, no, it was it was a it was a nice little um, system. The weird thing is, like, I wrote Game Gear versions, but we did a separate Master System version with a separate programmer. And I still to this day I don't know why because like I say it's the same it's the same thing but with a slightly smaller screen area. Yeah, it was essentially a portable master system, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, um, but I think the screen the screen was square and there's only about twenty by twenty characters, but everything else was the same as the master system. There's no reason really to develop two separate versions. I don't I don't know what the thinking was behind that. I always think my game gear versions were better than the master system versions though. Well, the industry moved very fast around, you know, the, the early to mid nineties. I mean, was it kind of hard to keep up with the all the new systems that were coming along? And like, there seemed to be new hardware coming out like every two months at that stage. Yeah, I mean, in the first ten years of my uh, my working in the industry, I, I probably I worked on loads of systems. You just you you were just asked, you know, if someone came in, if someone came into the company and it needed developing, you were put on that. So you know, like I said, what's on PCs, or what's on Amstrad's, or what's on Amigas, STs. Um, the SNES, I think, we're just at the end of my tear taste time, Game Gear, like so. Help out on the Mega Drive version. You, you just turn your arm to anything. You, it's slight, you know, you'd, you'd have the, probably a main programmer doing who specialised, but you could certainly drop in and out of. I think my last job on, at Teartex was doing sound effects for Sh- Shaq Fu, was it called? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a famous uh, bad game, isn't it? Shag Fu. That's I think that's up there in the uh, the top ten, I think. For well, didn't they didn't they do a newer version recently? I think they did actually. You're right. Cause I think we read about that more like no seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think they had a Dennis Rodman and King John Neal in it. <laughs> it was <laughs> interesting. <laughs> right. mm. Yeah, well, it's an odd one to resurrect, isn't it? Hated at the time. Let's bring it back. Yeah, they're doing Rise of the Robots next or something. <laughs> Rise of the Robots HD. Yeah. <laughs> I think I worked with someone who worked on that. Did Jim Bagley? Jim Bagley work on that? On Rise of the Robots? Did he? I wasn't. I wasn't aware. Oh, I might be. I might be slamming him there. Don't don't quote me. Yeah, that. it's it's not on his uh, his Moby games. I don't think. No, I don't keep that quiet. <laughs> Definitely someone. Mm, I'd have to double check that. Well, you worked on a lot of football titles in the 90s, like uh, FIFA and World Cup 98. Um, that was a kind of period where FIFA started to dominate in the uh, football games. Uh, what was it like working on those titles, and how did that come about? Well, I, I, I did do a conversion of the very first Mega Drive FIFA. That was one of my Game Gear projects at, at Tex. And then I moved to, moved to Creations. We spent three years getting nothing out of the door at all, working on... Uh, fairly after fairly very frustrating and then the AI came along and needed um, an N64 version of the FIFAs and, and it, like I say it was just taking off then but I remember them showing us a, a 3DO version yeah. which was the first like full 3D one we'd seen and, it, and you know it was like wow you know this is a big license this is a big company um, this is actually going to be paid work for the company we might keep our jobs yeah it was good but that was the start of working in much bigger teams than you used to. I think you know, even even just just doing the N sixty four version, 
we yeah. were getting a lot of the code on the common modules so they'd send the ai code and the tournament manager code and we just basically did front end and things for the first one but even then we had six six programmers on the on the n64 one at our end and, you know and five artists and so suddenly this big team from from almost bedroom coding for eight years it was a it was, yeah, it was a different way. I, I, I must say, I've never, I've never particularly liked working like that. But also, it seemed to be a bit of a kind of tech race. So, like each football game that came out, they were trying to outdo each other. And obviously, International Superstar Soccer came out later on. But um, did you have any briefs to kind of add new features in or stuff like that? Yeah, that's what we started doing in the later one. We, we, we never, we were never given then to actually do our own bits. But they would want. We ended up doing some of these what I call the common modules. So we'd do tournament managers, and then they want to do do with the they bring in some. I think they still do it, don't they? They just bring in some incremental change each year. So we had a skill drills. I think one year, one year was just well, like I said, just the World Cup was the simple thing. Did never really. I mean, it's, it's over twenty years since I was working on them, which frightens me that they've done a sequel every year, and it's not that far different from the game it was then. The one time we did try and change it, and this people won't really remember this, is a, um, a separate standard called Premier League Stars. And it was based on the it was based on the FIFA engine and stuff, but had this totally different feel where it was like almost like an RPG. So you'd you'd build up your players and you'd get stars if you won matches and then you could spend stars on each of your players to make them better and like so you could grind out a team it's it's, um, it's quite interesting because nowadays they just seem to go for realism 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 rather than features yeah yeah i mean i think the strength of that of fifa and why it beat pez in the end was just a license and i can play as rooney or whatever wasn't it i think um people don't seem to look much beyond that didn't seem to be happy with a new strip and a realistic looking stadium it's a bit of, bit of a shame that the football game I mean, I don't, I don't play online and stuff, so I don't know a lot of that stuff's about in these career modes they do. But. Well, it, it tends to be if somebody, if you're beating someone and it goes half time, then they pull out their cord and have a rage. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, oh, we actually we used to have rage quits in the office when we were playing FIFA. Don't worry about that. I remember uh, there was a this thing where you, if, I think if you got four players sent off, the match was abandoned and it was a three 0 win. So people are trying deliberately feral if they were losing four 0 win. <laughs> just just yeah, so yeah. Playing it online, at least you can't hit each other. <laughs> no, no, yeah. I was stunned out of the office. And I, I think there was a great one in FIFA 95 where um, the referee had to actually come up to the player to give him a card. So, what you could do is you could run around yeah. the whole stadium <laughs> and he'd be chasing you with a card. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was nice. To, I mean, I, I never particularly liked that original FIFA compared. I, I, I think the reason the, the company gave me the job was because I liked football and. I kick off two is probably my most played game ever, and I still think that was better than any of the football games that followed. Yeah, the Sen- Sensi as well obviously was huge, wasn't it? See, I, ne- I never liked Sensi. Yeah, I think it would. I was too much in the uh, kick off two yeah. camp, and I thought they'd ripped it off and stuff. And I never quite liked. Although I've played kick off two since, and it's a little bit pinbally and finicky. So <laughs> they, were, they were probably right. The refinements in Sensi Soccer are a bit neater, but. It's, you know, <laughs> It never felt as pure as to me. Especially when, when I play football in real life, the ball pings about like it doesn't kick off to it, it doesn't stick to my feet. Like, uh, 
sense. More realistic. Yeah, more realistic. The way I play, falling over. Well, I know you've done um, a lot of iOS games and mobile games over the last decade or so, but recently you've kind of got more into um, retro development as well. I mean, is that something that you've um, you've kind of stepped away from retro? Have you always kind of had like a, a 64 in your cupboard that you played on, or, or, or have you kind of rediscovered them in recent years? No, I, I mean, like I say, I've got my arcade cabinet, I've played that, and um, uh, yeah, I've often toyed with emulators on uh, the, uh, the original Xbox and things. So yeah, and I've always enjoyed them. And like I say, when I was working in bigger teams on games at the end, um, I never liked that as much. Then we got to go back to uh, developing like one-man team stuff on mobiles. I mean, I go back well beyond before iPhones. I used to do a lot on the the the, the Nokia handsets and things like that. And it, and I, I enjoyed developing like that much more. I did, I got to do things like California California games conversion for them and you know there was a solo programmer challenge that I like uh, and then for years now I've not there's no money to be made on the iOS app store with games so I so I don't get to write them so I've ended up let's say going full circle and starting writing on the Commodore again yeah so let's talk about Millie and Molly meet malicious monsters then so uh, <laughs> tell us about the game um, it's it's based on a, a game by not cool. Just a normal Game Boy game I used I used to play back in the day, and I bought it since on um, on the 3DS. It's on the Virtual Console there, and it was just I think a very underrated and unknown puzzle game. So I was thinking about it and about how because I can't design, I thought oh, I could I could knock a version of that out if I took all the levels out and just wrote the game logic. I could have a game, um, a good version of Millie Mole. I'll stick it out for free to the community, and we'll go from there. And then people got interested from prototype videos like publishers and people were saying and then an artist joined and then my friend my old friend John who was a designer on the getaway on the PS2 and stuff and we'd work together at Creations got in touch and said he'd, he'd like to try and make a hundred new levels so then it became effectively its own game and John's uh, levels were much part of the success because it's you know it's been really well received much more so than any of my actual original Commodore games from Back in the day, does it blow your mind like how popular it all is again? It does, yeah, yeah. It's been incredible. Like I said, even when we did all this stuff, I was gonna, I was gonna release it for free because I thought, you know, people are not gonna pay for a Commodore game. It's fiddly for non clicks and stuff. But then I was advised not to by someone saying, you know, there's just sort of odd piracy thing and people just put their own name on it and make it look like that. And and if you sell it for a small price, you um, the community accepts it more, so I put it up as more person. You know, it's all, it made far more money than I ever did on the app. So, and I've been able to give um, Chun and Saul and Hans a little bit of money back for the, the work they put in. Oh, am- and even recently, when we've had stuff like you know the sixty four mini and like you know the new Maxi release and stuff as well, it's like mm. seeing them back in the shops and stuff. I mean, are you inspired to make any more titles for the sixty four then, or will you be- have you already started? Um, I've, I've actually got a finished project, right. um, which is supposed to be coming out. Uh, by RGCD um, but that's been delayed I don't, don't quite know why I think it's just you know the, the hobby hobbyist project so I think it's just getting time to actually publish it Sidetronic are doing the discontinued version of that but I think they're waiting for RGCD so they can together and um, I also started a, you can see this on the YouTube channel a, a sort of platform because I wanted to do something much more technical um, an actual technical game, so it's a scrolling, full colours, full screen scrolling, jumpy 
game. But this may be on hold because I've been actually approached by some people that may want something a bit more serious and uh, a quite a big project for the, for the Commodore. Wow. Yes. So uh, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about it, but it's uh, quite an interesting opportunity. So, yeah, so that might be put on hold whilst they do that. But I'm trying to get a, a little team together to do it justice. It's, um, it's a sequel to a, a well-loved Commodore 64 game. But an there's official, a teaser. <laughs> an official sequel as well. No, oh. Yes, no, but I said I don't know whether I'm allowed to say so, so I shan't. <laughs> well, when you can, <laughs> we'll get you back on, because that's... Um, well, yeah, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll be... Um, if, if, it's, um, if it turns out to be as big as I probably think it is, then yeah, we'll, be, we'll be doing the rounds trying to publicise it, I'm sure. Fantastic. Well, Carl, it's great to have you back doing 64 production as well, and uh, really enjoyed this little trip down memory lane with you this week, so thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for asking me. It's always a pleasure to speak about those days. <laughs> <laughs>